He knew what was wrong with us mentally. He knew what we needed. He was able to, to define that in real practical terms. And then he had to admit that he couldn't make that happen. That as a human, he couldn't make that vital spiritual experience occur. I look at that description sometimes when I start to doubt what's happened in my life. And I look at that description of a, of a spiritual experience and ask myself, has that happened for me? Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings from Studio AA, and we are Heco in Tejas. If you are not as fluent as I am in Espanol, go look up that word, Heco, H-E-C-O, Uh, and figure out what it means. But nonetheless, that was the voice of Joe Hawk that you heard at the beginning of this here episode. Oh, I think this is, oh, I didn't bring it out. I think it's episode number 301. Yes, yes, because we did 300 last week. So we are now well, well on our way episode number 400 so this is episode number 301 and you will be hearing so much more from joe hawk in un momento but first things first this here episode is being brought to you by barry and david and nick and idaliza and kate and donna and terry And what, you may ask, did these souls do? Did these aforementioned souls do do to deserve such a a recognition on the front end of this episode? Well, they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on that little yellow donate tab and they made a, a contribution to help us keep the virtual lights on. So thank you, Barry and David and Nick and Idaliza and Donna and Kate and Terry. This here episode number 301 that you're listening to right now is coming right out to Ewan's. All right. What do I want to say? Oh, so I was thinking about this last night a little bit. I thought, what is it? about hearing stories of recovery that I have been drawn into. 
Uh, and, and this was from the first time that I went to AA meetings. Uh, you know, some of them were like little bitty stories, like five minutes in a meeting. Others were speakers getting up and, and talking about their experience, strength and hope. And I thought, what does that do to me? Why am I so drawn into it? And I can't really explain it. I, I, to me, it's similar to music in that you know how every once in a while you, or, or at least for me, let me just speak for me. I hear lyrics every once in a while and I hear songs on the radio and they, they move me and it touches my spirit. And sometimes it reminds me of something in the past. Sometimes it's something present, something, sometimes I'm thinking of something in the future and, uh, but it can move me and it stirs my soul. And I think that's the same thing that happens when I hear these various stories of recovery. I hear people's experience, strength, and hope, and it makes me think about my moments, right? And it makes me have empathy for them many times. And it makes me think about my my purpose here on this earth. And, you know, sometimes I'm hearing information in these stories, and it's more like just technical information that people are giving me uh, about how to work the steps and about exactly, you know, whether to use a, a piece of paper or whatever while I'm writing my fourth step. And other times I'm just really caught up in that individual and their story and what is going on with them and and how they have overcome so much. And it makes me think, if they can do it, possibly I can do it. But anyway, maybe I was thinking way too much last night. <laughs> I was thinking about some of that. All right. So I want to start with a little bit of listener feedback, a couple of pieces of listener feedback here on the front end before we go into Joe. And here is... Okay, so this is a gentleman that wrote in from, oh gosh, it's been a couple of months back now, and, and we have been communicating back and forth and trying to uh, get something set up, and, and his, his email will explain it. His name is Mike, and he says, hi, John, my name is Mike Mick, and I had to reach out and say thanks for all you're doing for and with your podcast. I was recently from released from prison here in Arizona, and for the first year and a half of my sentence, the podcast was truly a meeting between meetings for me, and there was good AA fellowship at that yard. The last year and a half of my sentence, the podcast was my only meeting, no recovery program, and no one wanted to join me in starting up a meeting. I tried to hold meetings and no one came. Anyway, the Sober Speak podcast, podcast got me through. I also wanted to email you uh, and let you know that here in Arizona, the tablets don't have the ability to send emails, and I wish there was a way to write while I was incarcerated. He says, having said that, I want to offer my services to facilitate a mailing program for the podcast. If interested, please call me and we can discuss. Peace and blessings to you and the family. Uh and so we started a conversation after that. So what I did not realize, uh, and Mike, uh, 
uh, pointed this out to me is that there are people that are listening to this podcast. They are incarcerated. They can hear the podcast, but they can't send emails out. So what Mike has graciously offered to do uh, is receive letters for those who can write letters, mail out. And, you know, like I told Mike, I, uh, it just seems like the next right thing to do. I don't know where this is going to go. Uh, and I've thought about things like, well, if there are uh, uh, female inmates who would like to communicate with a female, we may have to set up another P.O. box. I really don't know what the answer is right now. And I don't know what kind of response we may or may not get. But I am very uh, grateful to Mike for setting up this address. So if you have a pen or a piece of paper or pencil or whatever, and you can write this down or just rewind it when you're able to, this is the address. It is Sober Speak. And then the address is 1962 East Apache Boulevard. I'll say that again. 1962-1962 East Apache, A-P-A-C-H-E Boulevard, P.O. Box 7925. That's P.O. Box 7925 in Tempe, Arizona. T-E-M-P-E. Arizona AZ, and then the zip code is 85281. And uh, I realize there may be others who are not incarcerated that want to communicate with Mike, and that is fine as well. Uh, Feel free to reach out. We're, like I said, we're between Mike and I, we're simply doing what seems to be the next right thing and then letting it play out as it should. and once again, though, if there's somebody who wants to email me, uh, I'm at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. But if you want to write some letters, uh, Mike is there and available. And once again, let's just see how this plays out. All right. Now, here's another piece of listener feedback that I received and This is in response to Doug S.'s uh, episode called Sobriety Date Bingo. I believe it's uh, episode number 297, if I'm not mistaken. And Doug got several pieces of uh, feedback that came in regarding his episode. And so I'm going to read the first part of this on the beginning of this episode. And then I'll have some more follow-up. Uh, when we get to listener feedback on the end of this, all right. So anyway, Amy writes in, and she and the and the uh, title, the subject line is Doug S. Sobriety Date Bingo. Thanks and thoughts. She says, "Hello, John. My name is Amy A. and I'm an alcoholic. I have been listening to your podcast since 2020, and I have been so fed with the wisdom." honesty, guidance, and inspiration so generously shared by you, by your guest, and you. Thank you. I am reaching out uh, a first for me to let you know that the episode 297, yep, it is, with Doug S. impacted me so profoundly. I am someone who had double-digit sobriety and nearly 10 years ago, I relapsed. In the journey toward complete 
unbearable demoralization, I lost everything. Loved ones, friendships, my home, my car, my job, and nearly my life multiple times. My desire to die was palpable and moments of having regained uh, with moments of having regained my will to live which allowed me to get up and keep going you're a good writer amy anyway she says as i look back i know in my soul that the profound and unspeakable shame kept me that profound and unspeakable unspeakable shame kept me paralyzed and in hiding I have been in recovery since 1994, but my willingness today and my gratitude for my life has changed this way. I view relapse and my dedication to get out from under the dominion of shame is something I would like to share with others who may want to die over their shame around our disease. Anyway, and she goes on and, um, uh, she says something about your talk with Doug S broke me open. And I think there may be a listener who is giving up hiding filled with unbearable remorse, all of it who might benefit from my story. And then she says, whether I hear back from you or not, your podcast is a gift and I thank you for it one day at a time, Amy a, and then, so I'm going to get into a, uh, when we do listener feedback, uh, I'm going to talk about, I sent, I, I forwarded that on to De- to Doug S. He was able to respond and uh, I'll let you hear about some of that. And then Amy, Amy responded again and you'll get to hear all of that on the end of this episode during listener feedback. All right, everybody. Now on to Joe Hawk part two. So I got an uh, an email from a listener. Her name is Debbie in Ottawa. She says, hi, John, I love your interviews. And in particular, the part one of Joe Hawk really spoke to me. Are you able to post part two? Best regards, Debbie in Ottawa with the Canadian flag. So, well, Debbie, your wish is my command. I mean, you know, to... To some degree, but nonetheless, um, we are publishing now Joe Hawk part two. Now, this is a series of recordings that were captured at the Salvation Army over a 12 week period in Santa Monica, California in 1987. Joe has gone on to the big meeting in the sky and uh, but his his words live on forever, and uh, I am here to uh, help share those with the the world. So anyway, uh, here is Joe Hawk, part two of his um, talks in Santa Monica in 1987. Uh, we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Uh, enjoy Joe Hawk. And by the way, the reason we say his name now is because he, like I said, he's, he's gone on just in case you don't know that just in case you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous and wondering why are they saying his last name? Anyway, God bless y'all. I'll uh, talk to you a little bit on the back end of this. Enjoy. My name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. It's good to be here again. Last week we, uh, we covered everything from the title page to, uh, page 17 and it's always good for me to remind myself just to get centered 
you know, what we're looking at here. What we're looking at here is the first half of the first step, the, uh, the admission of powerlessness over alcohol. And from the way it's been shared with me, everything up to page 23 is about the body. The body of the alcoholic after he takes a drink. So we're looking at powerlessness over alcohol physically after I take the first drink. This part of the disease, what we've looked at in the doctor's opinion, only happens after I take a drink. If I never take another drink, I will never experience the physical part of my disease, that phenomena of craving. If you weren't here last week and you're wondering how you can use the doctor's, doctor's, the doctor's opinion for yourself as a tool to help you look at the first step, the way to use the doctor's opinion is to try to make as many of the statements as questions for you. Is this me? Do I believe this? And, and try to stay centered on the idea you're looking at, does this happen to me after I take a drink? He, you know, he equates it to an allergy. The best one for me is if I'm allergic to strawberries and every time I eat strawberries I break out with a rash, do I have a similar reaction to alcohol? But instead of a rash, do I get a craving for more? Do I get a craving for more alcohol once I put a little bit in my system? So we're looking at two things up to page 23. We're looking at why am I powerless over alcohol physically after I take a drink? And the issue of control that we're looking at here is can you control the amount that you drink once you start? Is there anyone, is there anyone in the room who's having problems with that? That thinks maybe they can control how much they're going to take once they take a little bit of whatever it is they use? To a certain degree. The only problem is I gotta have a certain amount every day. Right. Do you know? Do you know what that certain amount is going to be, or does that change too? Till you reach that place of ease and comfort. Of course, I'm talking about if I'm working. Can you control that? Can you control how much you take? That's what I mean. Does the day come? Does the day come when you lose control over how much after you take a couple? Well, let's continue to look at that, because that, that. There's, there's quite a few things from 17 to 23 that help me look at that. They talk about, the one that really helps me is where they talk about the difference between the real alcoholic and the hard drinker. We were also given a tool on how to use Bill's story after we look at the doctor's opinion. And I was told to use Bill's story also as a tool to help me look at my life and to take the first eight pages of Bill's story and to mark everything that I can relate to, putting aside the differences, looking at the similarities. I'm not a stockbroker. I never went to war, and I've never been married. I don't look at that. I look at the similarities in three different areas. How did he drink? How did he think? And how did he feel? And I do that with the first eight pages of Bill's story to answer a question. Was I as hopeless as Bill? I don't look at the, the other eight pages of his story because I would only compare my recovery to his. Bill went through the first eight steps in a real short period of time. 
And I was told, until I do, until I do the work in the first eight steps, I shouldn't start to compare my recovery with his, but that once I've done that work in the first eight steps, I should go back and I'll probably be able to as mark, I'll probably be able to mark about as much as I did with his recovery as I did with his disease. But if I'm able to answer that question, like the last description of his, when, when Bill hit his final bottom, he describes it in a paragraph on page eight, where every word I can, I can relate to. There's not one circumstance in this paragraph that's not me when I got here, when I hit bottom. It says on page eight, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I met my match. I'd been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. I relate to every word in that paragraph. And I asked myself, was I as hopeless as Bill? In every area that I can relate to. My thinking, the way I felt, and the way I drank. And if I can answer that and turn to page 17, I see why I was asked that question. I see why I was asked to answer that question. Was I as hopeless as Bill? Because the first paragraph on page 17 says, We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. And I say to myself, so was I. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. That gives me some hope. In the next paragraph, they describe this first part of the program. We talked about the title page and that, that there's three parts to this program. This next paragraph describes the, the fellowship, the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous really well says, we are average Americans. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix. I look around in, the, in any of the meetings that I go to, and most of those people I would not have mixed with when I was drinking and, and taking drugs. But there, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We're like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. I was told that's like if we're all on a ship together, and some of us are up in the first class cabins, the second class, and third class, and then way in the bottom of the boat in the steerage, they have the peasants and the workers, Okay? And we're all thrown in the water together. We're all thrown up to our necks in water. And the guy next to you, you're up to your, you're up to your neck in water, and the guy next to you has a piece of wood he's floating on. Are you going to ask him what part of the boat he was from before you get on his piece of wood with him? No, you're not going to care. Because we share in a common problem. We're up to our necks in water. But, Unlike the feeling of, of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disasters does not subside as we go our individual ways. You know, they get to the shore and they all go in their different directions. Okay, We find a way out and, and that doesn't happen. What do we find here in the fellowship? The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us. And now the warning. The warning that the fellowship by itself is not enough. 
that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. They tell me that what I'm going to find in the fellowship is just one element in whatever this powerful cement is that's going to hold us together, that's going to hold me together. Okay, But what I find in the fellowship by itself is not enough. So what's the other part of that cement? And this analogy, when we're on page 17 about the cement, sounds kind of stupid. But you'll be very grateful that you understood about the cement and each stone that we're going to put in place on the foundation and how to build that foundation when you get to the end of a fifth step, to the end of step five, and they ask you to return home and read a paragraph that says returning home after the fifth step, we asked ourselves, have we mixed the cement properly? Have we put the stones properly in place? And you'll understand how we make this cement. What's the other part of the cement? The other part of the cement is the the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. Okay? Imagine coming to AA and all you can do is walk in in a room with a bunch of people and you really identify with how they drank but they don't have any answer for you. It's just a real nifty place to go share and talk to guys about how you drank. The feeling of having shared in a common peril. What if they didn't have an answer? You know, If all I needed was the feeling of having shared in a common peril, the county jail would have worked several times. Because there I would be thrown in with a bunch of guys and we all suffered from the same problem, but there was no solution. You know, the feeling of having shared in a common problem by itself is not enough. There better be a common solution. A way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. So I find, I find part of the cement in the fellowship. That feeling of having shared in a common peril. And I find the other part of the cement in this book common solution page 18 talks about this disease being an illness do I believe that does it involve those about me in a a way which no other human sickness can not so with the alcoholic illness for with it there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life it engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers it brings misunderstanding Fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. Anyone can increase the list. That's a great description of untreated alcoholism. When you guys get out of here, if if you make it to Alcoholics Anonymous and you see some of the people that are hanging around, you'll see people in the program suffering from those things. Sober. Sober, untreated. They'll be into fierce resentment, financial insecurity. They won't be on good terms with their family. That's a great description of the of the root, the root of my disease. I was told that I can use that as a guide to look back on my life, how I was, how when I was drinking, and I I can also use that as a guide to look at my life today. I was told that there's nothing in this book about how to find a sponsor or how to be a sponsor because they don't use the word sponsor. 
Well, they didn't use the word sponsor back in 1939, but I think the bottom two paragraphs are great descriptions for me as a sponsor and for me to find somebody to be a sponsor. I was told if every word in this book in the first 164 pages is important, that the one in squiggly lines are even more important. And here's one of those paragraphs. And this is the guide for me as a sponsor. The ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, <coughs> excuse me, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be done. So, Am I an ex-problem drinker? Have I found this solution? Am I armed with facts about myself? That's a great guide for someone to be a sponsor. But what about somebody who's looking for a sponsor? I find the next paragraph describes somebody that has what I want really well. <clears throat> that the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty. Was he like me? That he obviously knows what he's talking about. That his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with a real answer. That he has no attitude of holier than thou. Nothing whatever except a sincere desire to be helpful. That there are no fees to pay, no access to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we have found most effective. It's a great guide for helping you to find a sponsor. Was he like me and does he live like that anymore? You know, do I want to come to A and find somebody who's living like I was? Still. Or do I want somebody that was just like me, just as bad, if not worse, just as sick, but he doesn't live that way anymore? And, he's, and he has an answer for me. That top paragraph on page 19 gives us a very important statement that really helped me with the first step. Because I thought the first step was, I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol, and that's why my life is unmanageable. Until I started seeing that the elimination of my drinking was just a beginning. The next paragraph says, If I keep on the way I'm going, there is little doubt that much good will result because the surface of the problem would hardly be scratched. I think those two, two pretty much mean the same thing. If I keep on the way I'm going, just not drinking, there is little doubt that much good will result because the surface of the problem would hardly be scratched. If all you've done is take the booze and the drugs away, all you've done is remove your solution. All you've done is take the medicine away. Now, what are we going to substitute for that? It's like saying what we do with the diabetic is we take away his medication that stops the seizures. You take my alcohol and my drugs away, what am I going to use? Is there a sufficient substitute? On page 20, I'd like to use the... Uh, the middle, the middle paragraph as questions for each of you to look at. 
in relationship to the first step. How many times have people said to you, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't you? Use that as a question. Can you take it or leave it alone? Can you drink like a gentleman or more importantly, quit? And for us as alcoholics, we should probably ask ourselves, if I quit, can I stay quit? I'm sure everybody in this room has stopped a lot. Our problem is not stopping. Our problem is staying stopped. Can you handle your liquor? Is your willpower weak? Can you stop if you want to? She's such a sweet girl. Can you quit for her sake? If the doctor tells you that you ever drink again, it might kill you. Can you stop just with that alone by itself? You know, how many of us have been told that? These are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that the people that can do these things refer to people whose reactions physically and mentally are very different from ours. You know, the guy that can take it or leave it alone, the guy that can stop, the guy that can quit just for a girlfriend, the guy that can quit from the threat of a doctor is not like me. So now they help me look at the three different kinds of drinkers. This is where I got a little bit afraid, a little scared. But I also saw there's still not much that separates me from the, from the hard drinker. And it was, there was at this point, in this part of the first step, there's really only one basic question to answer. Am I a real alcoholic physically? They helped me look at the moderate drinker. He has little trouble giving up liquor entirely if he has a good reason for it. He can take it or leave it alone. So I asked myself, is that me? Can I give up liquor entirely if I have a good reason for it? No. I had a lot of good reasons and I was not able to give it up entirely. Can I take it or leave it alone? I don't have a problem with the moderate drinker. I'm definitely not him. But what about the hard drinker? He may have had the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. I did. It might have caused me to die a few years before my time. That's true. It could have. But if a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, <clears throat> this man can also stop. Although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. So the question there is, if given a sufficient reason, and we all had our own. My sponsor told me not to just look at these, although I had every one of these. Ill health, falling in love, a woman that says, if you just quit doing what you're doing, I'll stay with you. Change of environment, the warning of a doctor. Look at your own sufficient reasons, good and bad. I had some good sufficient reasons that some people were able to stop with. Love, opportunity, education, the big job, the right woman, the right job. Was there ever a sufficient reason that by itself you could take and stop? 
So far, that's the only thing that separates me from the hard drinker. I knew guys that could drink more than me, drink me under the table, and let one of them get a threat from his wife, or a 502 or DUI, or a threat from a judge. He stays away from it, and I can't. Give him a sufficient reason, and by itself. I'm not saying if, if a sufficient reason got you here, that's fine and dandy. You know, a court, threat from a judge, threat from a wife, fine. But ask yourself, would that sufficient reason by itself, is that all I need to stay sober? Can I take that threat from a judge? Can I take that threat from my wife and go on with my life and stay sober based on that threat? What about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. I did. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. They're saying there he might not even become as bad as that guy we just looked at. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose control over the amount he drinks, his liquor consumption, once he starts to drink. That's all they're asking me to look at. Do I lose control over the amount that I drink once I take a drink? And if given a sufficient reason, can I stay stopped? The rest of that page goes into some detail about our behavior. I personally don't think that the behavior of the alcoholic has much to do with why. I think it's probably just the result of. But it's good to, it's good to read because I find my, I find myself in the rest of that page. Especially when it talks about he uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. On page 22, the second paragraph says, This is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic, as our behavior patterns vary. But this description should identify him roughly. See, I'm not going to find out why I'm alcoholic in my behavior. We all have different behavior. We all have different circumstances. Okay? Let's not look at why you're an alcoholic in the circumstances and the drama of your life. Let's find out what does everybody in this room share in common as far as the problem. Some of you have been to jail. Some of you have never been to jail. Some of you have lost wives. Some of you haven't lost wives because of your drinking. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you haven't. Some of you get depressed and quiet. Some of you get loud and angry. Some of you fight. Some of you don't fight. Some of you are Dr. Jekyll. Some of you are Mr. Hyde. What I'm saying is everyone in this room probably has different behavior and some that's similar. And we all probably have different circumstances that happened in our life and some that are similar. But let's not look at the circumstances. Let's not look at out here to find out why we're alcoholic, let's just see that as the result of. There's a big difference between the result of my alcoholism and the reason why I'm alcoholic. The bottom of the page is the last time they're going to help me look at my body after I take a drink. And we're going to go on to the second part of that step. And here's the way I should be able to answer that. And this is the way I should be able to use this last paragraph as a question on page 22. I know that while I keep away from drink, as I may do for months or years, 
I, may, I react much like other men. But I'm also equally positive that once I take any alcohol, whatever, into my system, something happens, both in the body and the mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for me to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. So I say to myself, does my experience abundantly confirm that once I put any alcohol, whatever, into my system, something happens, which makes it virtually impossible for me to stop until I get to that place? You see, and I don't know when that will happen. Sometimes it takes three hours. Sometimes it takes three days before that craving is off my back. Sometimes it takes three drinks. Sometimes it takes 30 and I'm not there yet. That doesn't assume that I have much power over what's going to happen after I take a couple or any power over when I'm going to get to that place of ease and comfort. Now, if I can't answer that last part, if I'm not positive that once I put any alcohol, whatever, into my system, I lose control over the amount that I'm going to drink, I probably shouldn't go on. But if I'm able to admit that point, if I am able to concede that, if I am able to concede to that, yes, my drinking experience shows me that once I take a couple drinks, I lose control over how much more I'm going to drink. Once I take any alcohol, whatever, into my system, something happens, both in the body and the mind, which makes it virtually impossible for me to stop, then we can go on. I now need to change my perspective. I now need to change what I'm looking at. What we're going to look at for the next 20 pages is why am I powerless over alcohol mentally when there's none in my system at all? And the point of control will be, can I control staying stopped? Can I control the stop? You know, if all I have, if all I have is the part we've looked at, then all you need to do is take me to a detox and dry me out for 30 days, and I should be fine. But why is it every time they dried me out, and I didn't have any booze in my system for a matter of 20 or 30 days, how come I always ended up drunk again? If it's just a physical disease. You see, now we get down to the mental part. These observations about the body are academic and pointless if I never take the first drink, thereby setting that terrible cycle in motion. Craving, obsession, craving, obsession. Therefore, the main problem that I suffer from centers in my mind rather than in my body. Okay, why do they say academic and pointless? I don't see how those two go together. I was told it's academic because it's real important for you to have identified does that happen to your body after you take a drink. But it's also pointless because knowing that by itself will not keep you sober. So it's academic. It's important for me to know, but it's also pointless because knowing it won't keep me sober. And if I never put another drink in my system, I'll never experience that craving. Therefore, the main problem now that I'm dried out, the main problem now that I'm dried out that needs to be treated is in my mind. The thing that's going to get me back to the first drink. Bottom of the next paragraph gives me the first description of, of an obsession. 
They're going to describe this obsession several times in the next 20 pages. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, I'll beat the game. The bottom of the page says, The tragic truth is, if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He's lost control. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. Will my strongest desire keep me sober? Is the only requirement for membership to the fellowship the only requirement for me to stay sober? Or have I reached a stage somewhere during my 17 years of drinking where my most powerful desire doesn't get it? For some reason, I thought when I came here that the only requirement to be a member was the only requirement for me to stay sober. Now we look at a very important point, the idea of choice. The fact is, most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Did I reach a point somewhere in my drinking where I couldn't just wake up and choose not to drink? And did I reach a point in my drinking where all I did was choose to drink? Or was there more involved than just choice? I see it like kind of coming to, like you're coming to an intersection, intersection at a dead end road. And you have a, you have a choice to go left or right. And left is to the bar and right is to home. <laughs> to stay sober for the rest of the night and you come to the end of that intersection every day and for about 10 or 12 years you seem to have a choice every day am I going to go this way am I going to go this way but it's somewhere in my drinking somewhere in my 17 year history with alcohol did I reach a point where I didn't just choose to go to the bar I didn't just choose to turn left because I really wanted to get home and I really wanted to get home sober, but something stronger drove me right to the first drink, and I didn't make it home. Was it just a choice to drink? And was it just a choice not to drink? Can you go the rest of your life and just wake up every morning and say, Today I choose not to drink, and do that? Or have you lost that choice? Have you lost that kind of power that gives you the, the freedom of choice when it comes to alcohol? Has your willpower become weak, practically non-existent? Are you unable at certain times? The scary thing there, it says at certain times. You know, maybe 99 days in a row, maybe 28 days in a row, maybe every day for six months you were able to bring to mind something, like how you felt the last time you went to jail or what you did, what you did the last time you got drunk. Maybe you were able to bring that to mind 30, 60, 90 days in a row. But would a certain day come when even remembering that wasn't enough to stop you? Do you have a defense against keeping yourself from the next drink? Do you have a defense against the first drink? I hear a lot of people in AA, they say, if you get a thought to drink, just think it through. This next paragraph tells me that there will come a day when that won't be enough. Thinking it through to the consequences, 
and how I'll be in a month or two months or six months. The almost certain consequences that would follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to stop me. If these thoughts occur, if I start to think it through, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time I'll handle myself like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps me from putting my hand on a hot stove. You know, how come I can, I can lay my hand on a hot stove once and burn, burn it really good one time and say, I'm not ever going to do that again. But how come when it comes to alcohol, I get burned over and over and over? And I can't just say, I'm not going to do that again. I might say to myself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time. So here's how. Or perhaps I don't think at all. You know? I saw times when I thought of the consequences and still walked right into the bar. But I also saw some times when I didn't think much at all of what the consequences were going to be. How often have, have some of us began to drink in that nonchalant way? And after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to myself, for God's sake, how did I ever get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink. Or, screw it. What's the use anyhow? Now we're looking at my thinking. We're looking at my mind. We're looking at what goes on in my mind when I don't have any booze or drugs in my system at all. When this sort of thinking is fully established in an, in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he's probably placed himself beyond human aid. You know, do I think there's anything human that can stop that part of me that gets me back to the first drink? Page 25 tells me there is a solution. <coughs> and then they spend a whole paragraph telling me what I have to do and what, and what I won't like. And then finally in the next paragraph they tell me what that solution is. Here's what I won't like. Self-searching. Leveling of pride. Confession of shortcomings which this process requires. That's one of the first times this book tells me there is more than one requirement to be a participant in the recovery process. There might only be one requirement to be a member of the fellowship, but this short sentence has just told me there's at least three requirements to successfully complete this recovery process. Self-searching, leveling of pride, confession of shortcomings. Self-searching, Step four, five, ten, leveling of pride. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Confession of shortcomings. Step five, step ten, step nine. But I saw that it really worked in others. And I, I came to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as I'd been living it. When therefore I was approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, those with whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for me but to pick up a simple kit of spiritual tools laid at my feet. We have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we not even dreamed. Now I had a problem with that idea about the fourth dimension. It sounds kind of spooky to me, like kind of like, like, like Twilight Zone or something. I was told the fourth dimension is real simple. You and I have lived in three dimensions most of our lives. 
We've lived in the cravings of our body. We've lived in the obsessions of our mind. And we've lived dominated by, my, by our emotions. Those are the three realms I lived in for 30 years. I lived in my body, I lived in my mind, and I lived with my emotions. They told me the fourth dimension is the spiritual realm within. The spiritual realm within each and every one of us is the fourth dimension. And it's not out here, and it's not rocketed up into... It's within. It's the spiritual realm within. Where the root of my disease is. Where my sickened spirit is. Because I am not just sick physically and mentally. And I'm not just dominated by my emotions. I am spiritually sick as well. So what's the solution? The great fact is just this and nothing less. And nothing less. We have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. Which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. If you are seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. So how do I know when I'm hearing middle-of-the-road solution in AA meetings? How do I know when I'm hearing middle of the road solution because if I'm if I'm if I have admitted to be a real alcoholic like the people in this book there is no middle of the road solution so how do I know when I'm hearing it if I'm hearing anything that doesn't have to do with how to have a deep and effective spiritual experience or how that's come about for somebody or how that can come about for me I'm hearing middle of the road solutions I'm in a position where life is becoming impossible. And if I've passed into that region from which there is no return through human aid, that thinking that they described on the bottom of page 24, I have two alternatives. One alternative, to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable situation as best I can, denial. The other, to accept spiritual help. If the root of my disease is spiritual, do I really think anything else but a spiritual experience is going, to, is going to treat the root? Do I think therapeutic measures are going to treat a spirit? Do I think emotional measures are going to treat a sickened spirit? The next three pages are about a, a man's visit to one of the top psychiatrists at the time in the world, Dr. Carl Jung. And we will find a great similarity between what Dr. Carl Jung tells this guy as to what Dr. Silkworth told Bill about the body. Carl Jung is going to tell us the same kind of stuff about the mind. There's a great similarity here because Dr. Jung is going to tell us what's wrong with us mentally, exactly what it is we need, and then admit that he as a human couldn't provide it. Same as the process that went on with Dr. Silkworth. He knew what was wrong with our bodies. He knew exactly what we needed, an entire psychic change. And then he admitted that as a human, he could not provide that. So this guy, his name was Roland. Got a great last name for an alcoholic. Roland Hazard was a certain American businessman who had ability, good sense, and high character. For years, he floundered from one sanitarium to another. 
He consulted the best-known American psychiatrist, then had gone to Europe, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist Dr. Jung, who prescribed for him. Though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in short time. More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. So he returned to the doctor, who he admired, and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain his self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never regain his position in society and would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was the great physician's opinion. Well, Dr. Silkworth felt that pretty much the same way at first, that we were pretty much hopeless. But this man still lives and is a free man. He doesn't need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go where, anywhere on this earth where any other free men can go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. They're going to tell me about that certain attitude at the second step on page 55. Next paragraph down. The doctor said, You have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state where that of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed in on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, Are there no exceptions? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. So here's a guy who knew what was wrong with us mentally. That if we had a mind of an alcoholic, we couldn't keep ourselves from the first drink. And here's a guy who knew exactly what we needed. Dr. Silkworth called it an entire psychic change. Dr. Carl Jung calls it a vital spiritual experience. And then he describes these phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding force of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of con conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. With many individuals, the methods which I have employed are successful, but I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. He knew what was wrong with us mentally. He knew what we needed. He was able to, to define that in real practical terms. And then he had to admit that he couldn't make that happen. That as a human, he couldn't make that vital spiritual experience occur. I look at that description sometimes when I start to doubt what's happened in my life. And I look at that description of a, of a spiritual experience and ask myself, has that happened for me? So I look at my old ideas. What were some of my old ideas? I can't stay sober. 
I can't stay sober and be happy. Was I dominated by my emotions? Did I do what I felt? And what were my old attitudes? Okay. And then I look at what's going on in the last five years and I ask myself, am I now dominated by a new set of conceptions and motives? Have my ideas become conceptions rather than just ideas? Do I have a new set of conceptions? It's not the world's fault. There is a way to stay sober and be happy. And do I have a new set of motives? You notice they leave the word emotions out of there. I am not dominated by my emotions today like I was. And do I really care sometimes about helping somebody other than myself? Do I have a new set of motives? And then I get to see that that's a real and practical definition for me. The second paragraph on page 28 talks about three lines down from the top. We have no, no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired. If what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. If I am willing and honest enough to try, there is a simple, understandable way for me to form a relationship with a living creator within me that I will be able to feel and see. And there is a way that faith can be acquired. We will look in the second step pretty soon at a process to go from a simple belief to faith through these steps. Page 29. Actually, on the bottom of page 28, it talks about that in the next chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism as we understand it. Then a chapter addressed to the agnostic, step two. Many who were once in this class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such, we find such convictions that no great obstacle to a spiritual experience. Further on, which means from chapter 5, there are clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered. These are followed by 43 personal stories. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. Bottom of the page, our hope is that many alcoholic men and women desperately in need will see these, will see these pages and we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. I believe that's a question that needs to be answered sometime in the first two steps. Am I an alcoholic and do I really want this thing? Do I really want this? Before I stop, I'd like to look, before we go into the next chapter, I'd like to look at three different words for your consideration before next week. And those three words are power, control, and choice. Okay? We're looking in the first step at the admission of powerlessness. The first page in the next, in the next chapter is going to use the word control. And from here on, and they already have used the word control. And we've begun to look at the idea of choice. 
The idea I'd like to submit for your consideration would be if you lose any one of those things, if you lose power, if you lose control, or if you lose choice, if you lose any one of those, don't you lose all three? Let's take a man on a sofa, paralyzed from the neck down. Does he have the power to get up and walk to the door and walk out of that room on his own? Does he have the control to do that? Does he have a choice? Okay. For me, how do I look at that for me as an alcoholic? If I am powerless over alcohol and I'm never going to regain control over it, do I have a choice? I looked up the words power, control, and choice. And for power, it's talked about strength. Do I have the strength to control alcohol? Either the amount I drink after I start or staying stopped. Control, they said ability. Do I have the ability to, to control the amount I drink once I start? Do I have the ability to stay stopped? And for choice, it was real interesting because it said two or more reasonable options. So do I think I really have a choice over alcohol? Is drinking a reasonable option for me, or is that insanity? If I've lost control, if I've lost the power, I have no choice. I think we'll stop there tonight. It was fantastic listening to Joe Hawk once again. He is a classic. I know you enjoyed that. Uh, If you would, please take some time to pause your device and share that episode with another friend or family member. Guess what? It may be just what they need today. We do not want you sharing your toothbrush or your STD, but we would love for you to share that episode. Now, on to a little bit of listener feedback. And once again, just in case you didn't catch it at the beginning of this episode, we have a gentleman in Tempe, Arizona. His name is Mike. And Mike has graciously agreed to uh, receive mail at a P.O. box there. And uh, if you need that address one more time, you need to go back and listen to the beginning of this episode. Oh, I'll try to put it actually in the show notes if I actually remember to do that. Uh, But anyway, a sober speak at 1962 East Apache Boulevard, P.O. Box 7925, Tempe, Arizona, 85281. Reach out to Mike. He's waiting there for your letters now on to a little bit of moss listener feedback cassandra she now because i get this wrong every time it's not cassandra it's cassandra i'm gonna break that habit eventually here anyway cassandra is oh gosh cassandra just a dear friend of the podcast she she does so many posts for uh, for the uh, she helps us with the sober speak live event she does posts for instagram all the time posts for facebook um and there's other stuff that she does and it's not coming to my mind but she has put in countless hours uh volunteer hours helping us get the word out regards sober speak regarding sober speak and i just i'm so appreciative of cassandra and what she does but anyway she texted me and she says 
Hi, John. I was thrilled to hear Doug S. back on the mic. My heart just went out to him. And as always, uh, just captivated by Doug S.'s shares. This one was no exception. I'm glad he can be open and honest. No more secrets. Keep it up, Doug. I hear you. I see you in a big O heart. And Cassandra, as you know, I got you two in touch and you were able to kind of go back and forth and, and I really appreciate that. Uh, by the way, once again, that is episode number 297. Now, remember I told you earlier that Amy wrote in, that was on the beginning of this here episode, and uh, you can go back and listen to that if you didn't catch it, but Amy wrote in regarding Doug S and how moved she was about his particular share on episode number 287, and Doug responded basically to me and Amy, all right, and he says... I am not a, this is Doug S, the actual gentleman who recorded the episode, uh, and uh, he said this, I am not a crier. I wish I was more of a crier, but I'm not. I'm a trained actor, and I can cry in a scene if needed, but in real life, I'm stoic. I couldn't get through the email from Amy without bursting open. I don't e I don't know if I've ever cried like this. I am sobbing. I've entered the realm of an ugly cry. It pains me to share the truth that I did not believe I would make it through this year. My mind wants me to die on a daily basis. I hope Amy doesn't give up. I realize that she realizes that I am glad and I have not yet thrown in the towel. John, I don't know if you know how much you, your support means to me. I have heard the quote, tears, of an, are, tears are an expression of gratitude overflowing. I like that. I'm going to read that again. He says, I have heard that, quote, tears are an expression of gratitude overflowing. It makes sense to me. He says, for me, my tears are out of fear and how close I have come to giving up. I think of the possibility that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to share my shame, my fear, and my pain with you on the podcast. Anyway, that I can help anyone, in uh, any way that uh, any way that I can help anyone is dealing that is dealing with shame, loneliness, suicidal ideology, etc. Please let them know I am here. So if anybody wants to contact Doug, just send me an email and I'll get you in touch with him. It's John J O H N at SoberSpeak.com. He says my tears have blurred the screen. Possibly my move to Frisco, he's talking about when he moved here to Texas, wasn't a mistake. Maybe all the pain was for a reason. I am reminded of the Buddhist teaching referencing the lotus flower. The more mud surrounding the more root, surrounding the roots, the more beautiful the bloom. Let me say that again because I messed it up. The more mud surrounding the roots, the more beautiful the bloom. The tears continue to 
Dr. Flo, can, uh, please convey that to Emily. Well, excuse me, to Amy. And, and she was able to get copied on this. That she is loved and our circumstances do not define us. They only reveal us. I have never been more moved in my life with all my love and all my heart, Doug. Well, thank you, Doug. I appreciate you writing in, and uh, I'm I'm just uh, I'm beside myself with uh, uh, fulfillment uh, that you were so moved by all of these messages coming in, and then Amy responded to both me and Doug. And she says, Doug and John, my heart is so full. Thank you for your vulnerability, Doug. And thank you, John, for being a vessel of the Holy Spirit. I really believe that our higher power works through us flawed human beings. When the student is ready, the message gets delivered. And then she says, Doug, One of the last things you said was that shame destroys our good. I know this truth so intimately, and I also know the power of our program and our fellowship and our shared experience to be the only way to reject that awful shame. Thank you for helping me today, both of you. And as for crying, I'm a crier. (laughs) This is Amy, Amy speaking. It's embarrassing but I hadn't cried for a long time. And I was recently asked to read the promises at the end of a meeting. I've read it dozens of times, but this time when I got to the line, quote, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, unquote, I broke wide open and I could barely get through it. I've gone down that scale to the bottom, and I thank you and so many others that I am not there today. Peace and appreciation, Amy. Ah, what a wonderful exchange from from you and Doug, Amy, and I appreciate you listening, and I appreciate your vulnerability as well. Thank you so much. So, Jessica commented uh in instagram regarding doug's episode so i think the theme of this here is if you haven't listened to 297 (laughs) doug s sobriety bingo i think you should go back and listen to it that's just what i don't know i mean you know i could be wrong but that's the message i'm getting here and i just so you know folks and i warned folks on the beginning of it it is not your typical share but that's why i loved it so much uh and uh it, it but it's a great episode just absolutely loved it i love recording it i'll put it that way and uh anyway jessica commented on instagram she says uh, uh thank you doug for all you shared very inspiring and then in big capital letters open-mindedness honesty and willingness She said, I just started listening to new episodes after getting to episode number 81 on Sober Speak, and I am so glad your your new truly honest story was my first new episode. So inspiring. So so cool. Uh, anyway, um, that's in uh, that I'm not done with listener feedback yet, but I think that's all I've got so far for Doug, but we shall see. Um, Heidi writes in, 
episode number 272, she titled this. And the reason I paused there after saying Heidi's name is because I can't help it but that song, Heidi, 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 went off in my head. And then I thought, okay, don't say it. Don't say it. Ah, there I said it. But anyway, uh, Heidi writes in episode number 272, and she says, hi, John. Well, hello, Heidi. My name is Heidi, Heidi Ho. She didn't say that. That's just me making it up. My name is Heidi B from New York City. I started listening to Sober Speak just a few weeks ago. I found you while digging around for some Charlie and Kate P tapes. This was after someone had mentioned them and said that Charlie had recently passed. I listened to all of his and Katie's episodes on uh, uh, all of his and Katie's episodes on here, and now I'm just starting to randomly picking episodes. Needless to say, I quickly fell in love with the podcast and your quirky personality. <laughs> you may not think that anymore after I. Um, <laughs> After I started singing songs with your name in it. Anyway, she says, well, this morning I was scrolling and I found episode number 272, John M. And she said, I was in tears by the time it was over. While I have loved all the speakers I've listened to so far, no talk has been as funny and as deeply moving. Thank you, Heidi. And by the way, just in case you don't know, she's episode number 272 is where I reluctantly featured me on my podcast. But anyway, she says, I identify as a compulsive overeater and I am in uh, Overeaters Anonymous. My mother had issues with food too, but they never diagnosed an eating disorder. I had a very similar experience to yours with my mother where I was next to her as she laid in a hospital bed before she passed. I watched the color drain from her face and body. She was 55. I had recurring nightmares. Uh, saw her when she when saw her when so looked in the mirror and I was just haunted by her death for more than a decade. I am now recovered by the grace of God and by working the steps outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, my abstinence date is March 28th of 2021. I've since made amends to my mother via a letter, and one of the most miraculous things happened that day. Right there and then, a wave of peace passed over me, and the nightmares and the remorseful thinking are gone. The, the miracles of this program are endless. Gosh, I can relate to that. Gosh, I can Thank you for all you do, John and Mrs. M. I know you help a lot of people and you certainly help me. Take good care, Heidi B. from New York. Gosh, Heidi, thank you for writing in. I remember reading that and oh, I just made my day. God bless you. Thank you so much. Joel writes in and Joel says, Hey, John M. I was released from prison in Florida yesterday. I wanted to tell you that you and your podcast, as well as your guest, and then in big capital letters, save my life. 
Thank you and God bless you, Joel V. And Joel follows up. He says, I will be sending you a more detailed message soon about who, about how you and your friends, as well as AA saved me with like 10 exclamation points. And then he puts at the end, P.S. I just got a phone, bunch of exclamation points. And then he goes, I have tears in my eyes from getting the phone. I will be in touch. And then he says, I signed up for your super Facebook thing. (laughs) So Jules, in in her super Facebook thing, I don't know what you mean about saving your life, but I'm just glad you uh, have some hope, Joel. And, uh, And I'm glad you got a phone, buddy. I'm glad you got a phone. Dave writes in, and Dave says, Hi, John. I am from the United Kingdom. Well, hello, Dave. He said, I found your podcast looking for recovery stuff online. I used to be, uh, I used to be very big into the 12-step recovery. Without giving you my whole life story, by the way, he put a big uh, uh, Union Jack uh, uh, flag on the email, which I love. Uh, without you know, telling you my whole life story, I'm now doing what people that usually don't go to meetings do. Anyway, I need to find my way again, and I started listening to your channel at night, and I found myself really enjoying it. I know I got to drop my resentment and get back to -to face-to-face meetings at some point, but I found this to be a good starting point. Regards, Dave. Well, keep us posted, Dave, and yeah, like I said, I've never meant this to be a substitute for meetings. I think this is a meeting between meetings. We are simply to supplement, and, uh, but I'm glad, though, that we are, are uh, I'm glad that we can use uh, be used as a launching pad at times, so God bless you, Dave. Jessica writes in, and Jessica says, hi, John, my name is Jessica. I have been sober for one year today. Good for you, Jessica. That is fantastic. I live in Yuba City, I think is how you pronounce that, California, and my home group is the Speakeasy. <laughs> I like that name. I have been working my way through your episode uh, through your episodes from the beginning. So I am only on episode number 81 with John W and the principals. Uh, I have not wanted to write in yet. Because I wasn't caught up enough to hear you read my email, but I figured reaching a year of sobriety was a good excuse to write in and tell you how grateful I am for your podcast. That's great, Jessica. Once again, a year is a big one. That is fantastic. She goes, I do go to many meetings in my area, but every time I need a meeting between meetings, I turn on Sober Speak. I can't tell you how how helpful it has been for me in the first couple of months of uh, help, how helpful it was to me the first couple of months of being sober. I struggled specifically with finding my higher power and many of your speakers helped me through this while doing steps two and three with my sponsor. My area is sort of small 
So it is very helpful to hear new insights and points of view. I also learned that the Tao of our, I also learned about the Tao of our understanding. She's talking about my, the podcast that my buddy, Buddy C does, my buddy, Buddy C, uh, from you. And I've, I've been listening to that. Uh, when I need a good dose of spiritual principles. Thank you so much for providing this extra resource of recovery and helping me to get a whole year of sobriety. I have gone back. I have gone from being homeless with my abusive ex-husband and getting my career and dog back uh, to getting my career and dog back and living in my own place and supporting myself with people who love me just a phone call away. So cool, Jessica. So cool. All in one year by doing the next right thing and thoroughly working the program of AA. I will keep coming back and working my way through the episodes and recommending the podcast especially to newcomers. Thank you, Jessica H. Very cool, Jessica. And I know I've already said a couple, three times, but congratulations on the one year. That is really cool. Nick writes in and Nick says, I am located in the Tri-Valley area in California. Assuming there's three valleys that come together. I don't know. He says, my sobriety date is April 20th of 2022. I was introduced to AA through my residential treatment program, and I immediately resonated with the big book. I knew AA was the only option to keep me sober in the long run. Plus, I love all the benefits that come with working the 12-step program. I understand that, Nick. Um... I found Sober Speak by searching the term recovery on the mobile app. Hark, which I listen to, Hark, which I listen to on my walks. <laughs> Hark. <laughs> Hark, the Herald Angels sing, and Hark, I listen to Sober Speak on my walks. Anyway, he says my favorite speakers are KCW. Chris S, Marty C, Scott R, David G, Gary K, and Doug S. There's Doug S in his name again. I'm sure this list will grow as I continue to listen more. Thank you, Nick. Well, thank you, Nick. I appreciate you right now. Boy, this is a lot of listener feedback. <laughs> I'm even going, how many are left? There's two left, just so you know. David writes in and he says, thanks, John, for all your help. It's going to get a great call. Oh, here is uh, a new friend, David. So David wrote in and David is interested in starting a kind of a podcast, publishing speakers, doing all those sorts of things. And um, he just wanted some feedback on how exactly to get started. And so I I don't know everything, but I let him know what I know. And he says, honestly, in this point of my recovery, recovery, every person and story that you have on Sober Speak resonates with me. Too long, I was uh, kept out of the rooms by looking for the differences. If someone drank every day, that's not me. My life isn't unmanageable. If someone did hard drugs, that's not me. I'm not powerless. I was sober for seven years and did the steps in reverse. 
like we always hear. I completed my steps and stopped talking to my sponsors. After two to three years, I stopped going to meetings and I became detached from the fellowship. When life hit me, I had nothing to fall back on. I had to, I had to face being molested as a child through therapy and EMDR, and it was too much. I had the obsession of alcohol lifted, and if tempted, I recoiled from it as a hot flame, but my disease told me to give cocaine a shot to relieve my condition. I stayed out for four years, and I finally adopted a baby. I convinced myself I was the, quote, hard drinker, and this life-altering event could keep me sober. It didn't. Once I started doing cocaine again, I realized that I had to start all over on my sobriety journey and I couldn't do this alone. I joined an outpatient program and built a strong base of like-minded individuals. Then I did 90 and 90 and I have service commitments. I'm in a great place, but I know all I have today. You, Sober Speak, is my meeting between meetings, and I appreciate all you do for this community, and I, and I appreciate your prompt response in helping me. I'm always here for you. Uh, I will always be here for you, as I know you would be for me, your new friend, David S. Well, David, oh gosh, it was so good catching up with you. I hope your podcast goes through the roof. Uh, and if you have any other questions, feel free to reach out for me. Thank you, my new friend. And finally, Joe reaches out. And Joe says, my name is Joe G. I live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I have 52 days sober today. I'm going to, um, I'm doing my 90 and 90 right now. I have a sponsor and I'm working the steps and I'm on step three. I read the daily reflections and 24 hours a day book every day when I get caught up, when I get up and I pray in the morning and in the night. Joe, you're doing everything that is suggested. It sounds like you are on the right path and uh, I am glad uh, congratulations on the 52 days, and I'm sure next time you write me, it's going to be much more than that. All right, everybody, that VAR is another episode, episode number 301, in the can, as they say in the business. Uh, there's no can you really put it in, but I think back in the old days, they would, uh, uh, tape these things and they had these big metal things where they would put them in round containers and they'd have that episode in the can. I am pretty sure that's where that, um, saying comes from, but anyway, who knows? Keep coming back. Whether it's to my silly little podcast or, or, or to meetings or some other recovery tool, whatever it is, keep coming back. It does work if you work it. Until next week, hopefully I'll be back next week. I take this one week at a time. May God bless you and keep you until then. Adios.